This is Transistor.fm. Hey, Ron, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Hey, Nate, how are you? I'm doing well. How have you been, Andrew? I am hanging in there. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Welcome to another episode of the Ruby Blend, where we talk all things Ruby. So what's, uh, what's been going on with y'all? Insurance class. <laughs> it's gross. <laughs> yeah. Pretty rough. It's actually a pretty good thing that my company allows people other than salespeople to go through insurance class to kind of learn the ins and outs of the insurance industry, which I do not know the ins and outs. And even having gone through the class, the two day class, I still don't know, but I know a little bit more and stuff that we do at work makes more sense, I guess. But yeah, it, was it was pretty intense two days of just like all of this insurance information being thrown at you and then like their online platform had a thing where it kept on popping up and asking you if you were still there so that they made sure you paid attention yeah so that was fun did they hit you with tests afterwards there were quizzes that we did as like a class you know, during the, you know, the, the lectures or whatever, there are two big tests that you're supposed to take at the end, which I have not taken yet. And I'm not sure that I actually have to because I'm not like a salesperson. So I don't need to actually get licensed. I was just taking it more for the information. But if, if big, if I have some time to actually go through the practice tests and do all of that, then I will probably take the test to try to get a certificate. I won't take the state exam to actually get licensed, but this is like a certificate that you have to take in order to be able to take the state license exam. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool that they, even if we don't need it, they still allow us, you know, they still pay for us to go through it because, Hey, the more we know, the better it is for the company. Right. Yeah, totally. I'm curious to see how much it helps you in your day to day. Like, have you already seen stuff that you were learning there that that oh. clarified some of the requirements or, or code that you've been asked to write? Oh, yeah, there was. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, even terminology that I was like, why is that called that? And I started thinking, man, whoever decided to to name these classes and methods <laughs> in the code base. I'm not sure why they did that, but come to find out they're actually like industry terms, which helped a lot. Like understanding what the terms mean for the industry was like super helpful. So that's cool. I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of something similar where CodeFund is working on becoming independent and our own independent company. And so we're looking at speaking to lawyers and looking at legal documentation about form, you know, corporate forming a corporation, a Delaware C Corp, most likely. But just trying to look at all the options, way how you set up your company bylaws and who's going to have 
options or shares in the company, how much you set aside for growth and all that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, it's a lot to take in and, and it's probably pretty similar in the sense that uh, a lot of legalese to read through and try to make sense of, and uh, you can read it all like three times over and still not have much confidence that you really understand it. Oh yeah. And sounds super fun by the way. But yeah, even like there's stuff that I know that I grasped because I had like a little bit of context of like being in the code base and seeing how stuff, stuff happened, you know, or, you know, how, how the processes work. But yeah, as far as like the vast, like amount of information that was presented in those two days, like I know I've retained like a small, <laughs> a small bit of that. So. I tip my hat to people that actually have to know this stuff. If it's your day-to-day getting licensed with the state and then, and then just talking to people about those very things that you, that you took the class on and, and, and were tested on, it kind of it tends to stay top of mind, just like our programming stuff does, right? I heard a stat one time that said, programmers, if we don't constantly... Uh, learn and refresh our skill sets. Our, our our skill sets today will basically be deprecated within five years. Wow, that's interesting, and I would tend to believe it. Like, I mean, I guess that's it's like that with a lot of things, like use it or lose it. Especially in our field, because things tend to move so quickly that it's not just about maintaining what you have, but learning the new stuff as it comes out. Yeah. Speaking of that, I mean, Andrew, Andrew is probably getting uh, a little bit of exposure to some new things as I know he's been kind of on the interview circuit here lately, given all the changes that are happening at code fund. Unfortunately, he's been out kind of hitting the pavement and and talking to companies and, and seeing if he can find his next gig. Can you give us an update of how that's going, Andrew? Yeah, so I don't think it's been mentioned on here, but I'm no longer currently at CodeFund, unfortunately, but life goes on. So I'm currently interviewing for new roles, looking for new roles, talking to companies. And it's been, I mean, I am in a lucky and very privileged place that, you know, people know who I am. I have a lot of people who shared when I, I put on Twitter that I was looking for a new job. A lot of people shared it and big thank you to all of them. So I've had several companies in my inbox. Some of them were, you know, a little misrepresentative of what the actual position entailed or what the company was. Like I think I've had a few that were they didn't have a company yet, but they wanted to build one. And I was like, well, no. <laughs> I'm not I don't really want to do that because I know the way I work before if if I had to like start from scratch with a co-founder who, you know, maybe this is their first time, then it's just going to be a disaster because I work best with a list of features that people want to implement and given free range. I mean, who knows? So I like working with a plan, I guess is the gist of that. But yeah, interviews kind of still suck. You know, everyone has a completely different process, which is, you know, mildly aggravating. Everyone wants you to do, you know, this or that. So yeah, it's been an experience, but yeah. So I, I know you're looking for a remote position. What's your take on like interviewing for a remote position versus, you know, if you were looking for on-premises, do you think that process is different uh, depending on the type of position? I would imagine, but I know a lot of companies right now 
because of COVID are going remote or are um, accepting remote employees. I had several people who I interviewed with who were either, if they weren't remote first before, they are now. So that's been nice. I have yet to talk to a company that wanted me to in person. And I have interviewed at companies in person before CodeFund for my first job. And, you know, it, I, the process is just so much faster over, you know, online because, you know, if you go to an in-person interview, then you got to think about what you're going to address. And then you got to like get that. And then you got to go there and be, I don't know. It's just, it's just like a longer process. And I think it just moves so much faster, more smoothly when it is completely remote. So what's, what's the typical process that you found? Is it, is it take-home tests? Is it live coding exercises in front of like a panel of people watching you do it? What's, what's it been like? So right now, I, I th- it depends on what stage of the interview you get. I've had a lot of first interviews and then either moved forward from that or decided, really decided that it just wasn't going to work out, whether the price point or you know, just what they were doing. I just was not, not interested in doing at all. So right now though, I'm finding either take home tests or they're doing, well, I guess I should start in the beginning. There's always some sort of like small conversation with someone, usually like a less than 30 minute conversation with someone on the team, a recruiter, HR maybe. And then it usually moves into, if they like that, then they go into a a bigger interview, usually an HR representative, or I talk to the CTO of a company kind of higher up who can like actually probably make the decision. And then it usually moves into some sort of challenge. I know I have one coming up that's going to be a like a live coding, but like pairing with someone on a feature. So I'm kind of I'm more interested in that and then what I have been doing, which is like hacker rank tests, which I find just a deplorable waste of time and then take home projects. And I'm, I'm, I guess I'm okay with take home projects, but if they're so rigid in what you need to use, especially if like you can tell the project is like maybe a little old or it hasn't been updated recently and they're using like, uh, you need to use this version of rails. And then you're like, well, why would I use that version of rails? Why do I use this version of this gem or that gem? Like when everyone knows that gem is, you know, blah, 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 blah. So, Take-home tests that are too restrictive, I find also to be a major waste of time. Also, just, I don't know, anxiety-inducing, I guess. Just when you're given, when you're given like these rigid guidelines and you don't know if they have, you know, like, do I really need to do this? But then you get to the point, because I'm a procrastinator, so I obviously do everything. So by the time I get to the point where I'm like, oh, well, this can't be right. Or like, why would I need to do this? And I ought to like reach out and ask questions. It's usually a little too late in the time frame for me to ask those questions. So I need to get better about that. But I mean, I also just have a lot going on. So I don't know, the take-home project seemed like a waste of time. And if you're not going to pay me to do the take-home project, then I'm going to be kind of about it. So what are you finding on the take-home projects? Are they typically a day's worth of work or less or more? I've, I guess it's fair to say I've only done one so far. It it would have been a less than a day's worth of work, but number one, they wanted me to use RSpec. So, I mean, the testing alone just took a long time because I don't use RSpec. So, Nate, you, 
you did me dirty on that. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah. I mean, RSpec is definitely widely used. It's kind of hard to argue with the tooling that crops up once the mind share kind of goes somewhere, regardless of whether or not it was the smart thing to do. Right. And also I'm finding a lot of APIs. A lot of people, it seems, are using Rails as their API with the JavaScript front end. So I have a little bit of experience there. Under, I mean, I understand how to make an API. So, you know, it's not, it's not too big of a jump, but it was just something, it was a lot of new tools I hadn't really used, like Active Model Serializer. I have used Active Model Serializer for a little bit at my first job, but we quickly moved to something that was way more performant, like uh, Fast JSON API. I believe it's the gem that is from Netflix. And I think there's another one that a lot of people are using. So, I mean, Active Model Serializers is old. So, I'd like to say something about the take-home test part of it because I do agree to a certain extent, like it really depends on how, on, on what they've, you know, what the challenge is or whatnot. But the one that I got for Ken, I actually liked it because it was something that, you know, you could do in a few hours, you know, you know, two, three hours. They were pretty open about they gave you the issue, like what you needed to do, but didn't really specify how to do it. So to the point where they didn't even tell you that you needed to do use rails or not, you know? So after I submitted that, we did like review with two of the engineers on there, but then I had a second, you know, well, another interview, there were several of them, the, but a second technical one where I took that submission that I did. And then I paired with two of the engineers to add a feature to it, which I thought was a really interesting addition to it. So because, yeah, like the whole, hey, go up on the whiteboard and write this thing while we look is a little, I'm, I, I don't like that. So I like, I prefer the take-home test because it's more of, you know, what you would actually be doing. But then when they want to see you actually perform, I guess, live, doing it in a pair session like that with code that you already wrote, so you're familiar with it. It's not like, hey, let's write a feature onto our thing. I think it worked out really well. And they were super cool about it because it was, it was actually a pairing session, you know, like, you know, I was doing most of the work, but I was open. They were open for me to ask them questions. They would give me, you know suggestions and whatnot, which is really, I mean, what happens, you know? So I really appreciated that about my interview process with them. Yeah. And that sounds helpful, you know, giving you the opportunity. Cause I feel like the point of a take-home test would not say like, can you do like task A? I mean, that seems like a waste of time because I mean, anyone probably with a little bit of Rails knowledge can figure out how to do task A, it's just going to be like mind-numbing, you know, research and then implementation. But I feel like the point of a take-home test should be, okay, here's a problem and now we want to see how you're going to solve it. And I feel like just boxed with like these restrictions is counterintuitive and it doesn't really get a way to see how you think. It sees like, okay, can you, can you like use Rails? Like, duh, I'm interviewing for a Rails job. Like, I, if you really want to see how good I am, you should give me the freedom to like show you like, oh, he he's using like 
up-to-date Rails gems. He's using like the fast versions. He's using like, he's thinking about performance. He's architecting things this way, not like, okay, we're going to box you in with all these requirements. And then we just want to make sure that you can write a Rails API. Like that just seems kind of silly. Right. Yeah. yeah. They may be filling you out to see like if you have a comfort level with what, you know, what they're currently stuck using maybe. But I do like, I do like what Ken did where it basically just left it open-ended. Hey, build this thing. Here's some loose requirements and go have fun. Right. It definitely demonstrates more of how you think rather than can you do A, B, and C. Right. Yeah. The pairing, the pairing side of that was, is really smart because that, that demonstrates a lot of things, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of testing communication skills, what types of questions you ask, culture fit, all those things are coming out in that pair session. That, that sounds like a very productive way to get it done. Right. And, it, and again, it's on like the code that you wrote. So there's also that comfort level because I know other companies will do a pair session, but when it's code that you're unfamiliar with, that's just another thing getting in the way of them being able to actually assess you, right? Like you're already, you're in an interview, you're already nervous and now you're like expected to you know, do something with code that you're unfamiliar with. So, yeah, I will say I have an upcoming interview with a larger rails shop and they said that the next interview would be me doing a pair with one of their engineers. And I liked the way they did it because they were like, you can use any language you want. So whatever you're most comfortable doing and don't worry, you don't need to like, like the pair, it's like a back and forth pair session. So I just thought like, even though it's for a Ruby job, offering you to use any language that you're comfortable with is, I thought was like really uh, a good move on their part. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Because I mean, ultimately, the language is probably how you think and how you solve problems is more important than do you know all the methods in a stand, you know, in this language's standard lib. You know, I was uh, one interview that I had. It was a it was. They made me do a whiteboard interview, but which I'm not down with, but they were like, hey, do it in any language you want. And it actually doesn't even need to be a language. If you want it to be pseudocode, then, you know, do it in pseudocode because ultimately all they cared about was, do I know how to solve the problem? You can look up APIs and, you know, standard library, but like really what you're trying to get to is how does that person think? How does that person solve a problem? I mean, because ultimately that's what we are, right? We're problem solvers. At yeah, least that's how I, I wish, see it. I wish the industry was a little more savvy in terms of, now that we have uh, a lot of social coding tools, there's, there's a lot of places you can go. I mean, not everybody has this luxury, but I mean, uh, several people do have projects that they've done and put out into the world that are available to go look at and, and discuss, right? So even if you went through a code boot camp, you, you very likely have um, several projects posted on GitHub that a potential, somebody who is actually serious about uh, hiring someone should do a little more due diligence than they're currently doing. Go look at those projects and then maybe ask, ask the person about those projects. Because I, I agree with you, Ron, in terms of Talking to someone to really understand how they think uh, and how they how they operate and solve problems, you need you need them in a in a comfortable headspace. So if you're talking about code that they've written, 
that's going to tell you a lot more about what their day-to-day is going to be like if they come in to your company. But rather than just making the assumption of, well, this person probably doesn't know how to program, so we're going to go have them reverse a a string uh, in place on the whiteboard in front of a panel, it's probably not, it's really, it's not testing very much, in my opinion. And it's a terrible experience for the person being interviewed. Yeah. And I will say my last, the very first company I did, they had like one of those questions on their, on their form. And it was like, uh, reverse a string with Ruby. And I'm just telling everyone out there, if you ever interview for a job and they tell you to reverse a string with Ruby, string.reverse is not the answer they're looking for. <laughs> that's but true, but it's, that's be, what you yeah. would do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, granted, it would be much better to take a real world problem that the company's struggling with or thinking about or, or talking about a data model or something like that. Like I've heard some interesting ones like design, design the game monopoly you know, in code, like it's kind of like those open-ended type questions of like, oh, well, now I've got to start doing requirements gathering and talking about where we're going to cut scope, all that kind of stuff. That's where it gets interesting. I actually had an interview when I was interviewing for places before I joined Ken that they had that exact, they had that one, one of the interviews was that exact thing. Hey, they brought, like they brought in Monopoly, the game and just opened it up and like set everything out and said, okay, we're going to design this. We're going to, we're going to write a monopoly game. And we started, you know, from like the database layer on, you know, and got as far as the time would permit us. But, and that was actually a really fun interview. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that actually is much more telling in terms of, of how you actually solve problems as opposed to thinking about like, I mean, some of the fundamentals are important, right? Do you know some of your basic data structures and, and things like that? But in reality, like people go through like these, you know, very CS level type interviews. And then, and then the first thing they find themselves doing on the job is like, you know, moving, moving an image over five pixels or something. I, I, would, I would prefer to see interviews uh, line up more closely to the type of work that's going to be getting done, you know, in your day to day. Yeah. Another interesting challenge I I got at that same company was to basically write a bowling game or a game that when you enter the frames, it calculates your score. And I'm not a big bowler. I can count the number of times that I've been bowling in my life on one hand. So learning the you know, the rules and stuff was pretty interesting, but yeah, that was also a fun challenge. I mean, it didn't have anything to do with their job, but it was better than some whiteboard challenge. Bowling sucks. (laughs) I'm no, I'm no longer allowed to bowl because apparently I have anger issues, quote unquote, but they only exist when the bumpers aren't up on a bowling rink or bowling alley. Bowling can be very frustrating that may or may not have anything to do with the reason why I've only been a handful of times. I'm with you. I'm, I quit bowling last time I bowled. I'm done bowling. I can't remember the last time I went bowling. I wonder if the uh, remote companies being more remote, I know some of them are remote now, but plan to go back in office once all this COVID stuff wraps up, hopefully, knock on wood. But I wonder if the remote nature of the interview process now and more companies working remotely, especially in tech, if that's driving more take-home test style interviews. 
as opposed to these brain teasers on the whiteboard in front of a group of peers. That's a very, I mean, that, that kind of puts you in the wrong headspace before you even begin to, to work on the problem, right? Some of those problems might be interesting and fun, but just the adversarial nature of the, the interview when you're sitting in front of uh, a whole, you know, uh, two, three people that are watching you do it live and, and critiquing everything that you're doing is, is a bit too stressful to, to perform well. So I, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is if the industry is moving towards uh, take-home tests, I think that's a net improvement over the whiteboard uh, puzzles. Yeah, definitely. But I'm not sure how much the us needing to be remote now has or would change that. Because prior to COVID starting, I know someone who had interviewed remotely. It was a remote interview. I don't know if the job was remote or not, but the interview was remote. And it was basically a that same whiteboard session type of thing, but like via Zoom. So they were there with a bunch of other people on the Zoom call and were like writing like with the annotations or whatever. So yeah, not sure if the necessity to be remote would change that, but I think, yeah, we should just get rid of that altogether. Yeah, I guess there are several services that, that you can do to like get your, your hacker rank or your developer rank that are basically, I guess those are basically your, your whiteboard challenges. Maybe one improvement would be if you went and did that and, and people trusted it, then you only have to do it once and people could just go look at your results. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that would be nice. I don't know. Those little projects, they're just so, they seem so useless and pointless because, I mean, no one is going to be given, I, I mean, I, I say no one, I mean, I don't want to mean that inclusively. Most people given like a problem, like a very advanced problem on hacker rank are not going to use Google to find something out, you know, and they expect you to like do it all without um, looking at anything else. It's just like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't reflect the real world. Like you're testing whether I can memorize something. And now I feel like I'm back at university, you know? And like I said many times, university didn't help me very much because I can very easily fake the fact that I something for a test. I end up in those situations coming out with very little. Right. Yeah. An interview process that doesn't test quote unquote based on like at least things that are as close to reality, reality being like, what is your day-to-day going to be? Like, I don't know about you guys. I would be willing to wager that none of us memorize, you know, most things. Like anything that I have memorized, it's because I've had to use it enough that it just stuck. But, you know, like who doesn't Google things, you know, consistently throughout the day? as a developer, I don't, I don't, I don't know those people. So yeah, like trying to hold someone to a a standard that like you yourself as the interviewer don't hold yourself to is, is pretty messed up. And again, it like, what does it tell you? It doesn't really tell you what you should be wanting to know about any particular candidate. Yeah. I, you know, I think part of the terrible uh, interview, um, practices in tech in general are, are, are not necessarily malicious. I think it's just out of either 
incompetence or laziness from a lot of the companies. Essentially, interviewing and hiring is kind of an afterthought for a lot of companies. And you're pulling somebody out of their normal day-to-day, asking them to qualify somebody in you know an hour or less once they come in. And you know, the first thing that comes to mind, the simplest thing that it seems to do is just give them you know a challenge or a puzzle and, and then just kind of watch them sweat it out through the process. So, I mean, like, I don't think it's necessarily malicious. I think it's, I think it's just we haven't taken it very seriously as an industry in terms of how to really vet candidates that, that would come work at a company. Yeah. And it's funny because, well, it's not funny, but I remember probably two or three years ago talking, and I can't remember his name, but talking to an engineer and the entire discussion was around how our hiring processes are so broken. And it's funny just to see, you know, nothing's changed. I don't know. Right. Well, I, and I, I wonder if the hiring process being broken doesn't at least in part stem also from a lot of other processes being broken, like people who are like knowledge workers, but they have to like clock in and clock out at certain times seems broken, you know? It's like a leftover, like from, I don't know, the, what are they, like the industrial revolution where everybody was in factories on assembly lines, like building widgets. And like, we don't do that anymore. So, you know, that that process probably is not appropriate. Well, I mean, it's definitely not appropriate <laughs> for us, but we should probably not be doing that, you know? So it's not just the the interview process that probably needs to be rethought, I think business processes in general now that we're in you know a knowledge uh, a knowledge economy a knowledge worker based field we we need to we need to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure out what makes sense and what what doesn't yeah i would agree with that i mean if you compare us to other professional disciplines compare tech to other professional disciplines whether it's some other engineering discipline or uh, the medical profession or legal profession or whatever, you know, when a professional gets hired in those, in those industries, it's, it's vastly different than what we experience. Like we, it, it, somebody can look at a technologist and say, Oh, I can see that you've got five, 10, 15 years experience, but we're going to test your fundamentals as if you had just come out of school or university again, because we don't trust that your career is telling us anything valuable. It's, it's really, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Like, yeah, if you think about it, if you have what, say, I don't know, an attorney with uh, 15 years experience, would that attorney's interview at a firm be the same as, you know, someone just coming out of school? Yeah, they're going to send them to the whiteboard and have them answer uh, questions from the bar. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what the right analogy would be, but yeah, it's something, something similar to that. Yeah. Well... What about, uh, it sounds like some of these take-home tests or, or things that you've been doing, Andrew, have, have kind of exposed you to technologies that you haven't used a whole lot, like RSpec. Do you have any thoughts about that, kind of getting exposed to things, libraries you haven't used or old versions of libraries or, or libraries you don't care to use? I'm just, I'm very curious on a personal level how, how that's going and, and what your take of using some of those tools is, has been. Yeah, so RSpec is infinitely better than many tests, and I'm pissed off that I ever used many tests to begin with. 
I, I'm serious. I like it so. It's so much better. Oh my god! I'm just like, holy crap! It's like, oh my god! I search for a question and the answer comes up. Well, what? That's been pretty crazy. The I guess the one downside to RSpec is there's so many tools and there's so many people writing articles. There's so much resources out there that you kind of have to be careful about not bringing in the kitchen sink with using it. I think Rails APIs are you know, interesting. I think, I don't think there's anything, I, I, it's been a pretty smooth process because I think if you understand how to implement like an API for your front end in a normal Rails environment, then implementing them for just an API only app is not, not very difficult, but it, the serializing library you use can definitely impact the speed at which you can move and also the resources that exist for it. Like I said, I'm using Active Model Serializer. I don't want to use Active Model Serializer. I'm pretty sure that we all know by now, or many of us know by now, that Active Model Serializer is very slow compared to some of the alternatives. So it's definitely not... If I was in a real project and someone said, we need a serializer gem, I would definitely not pick Active Model Serializer. Not that it's not a good library, but there's just better tools. So I mean... Props all the people putting in work over there, but it, you know there's just some better alternatives. So it, it's it's been interesting from that perspective. But just you know, there's a there's a there's a time period that's going to be required to use any new technology or any technology you're not used to. So the time it's taking me to write these RSpec tests is higher than it would take me to write mini test stuff. Not because RSpec is making me slower than writing in mini tests. Actually, it's making me way faster. But not being familiar with the tooling because I think I, I have written RSpec before, but a lot of the RSpec tooling I'm very unfamiliar with. Like factory bot, should have matchers, like do I even need that? You know, and kind of questions around that. And like, like I said, not bringing in the entire thing. And then I don't know. It's just, uh, it's not, it's not like I'm doing anything crazy. It's just I'm being forced to use tools that I'm not used to. So I'm going to move slower. Yeah, that makes sense. Something that Nate said earlier, you know, maybe the like the reason why you have to use active model serializer in this thing is because that's what they're using, which which makes sense. Um, right. Like, hey, let's let's make this challenge be with you know all of the you know all the tools that we use. But then again, I also think that the value of a candidate is not only in are they familiar with the tools that we use? Because, I mean, you can learn to use the different tools. I think that that's a minor, like, you know, oh, bonus. This person is a really good candidate. Oh, and they also know the tools that we use. Bonus. Right. But like, if they don't know, the t- you know, all the tools that we use, is that really, like, a hindrance? I don't think, like definitively like blanket. Oh, they don't know the tools. Well, sorry. I think you're doing the company a disservice if that's the attitude that you approach it with. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. It may give you some heuristic as to how fast they might be able to hit the ground running within the company and on the current stack. But what what gets interesting from candidates, uh, even hiring juniors, you know, if they're inquisitive, They'll ask questions that make you pause and, and question yourself. <laughs> like, why, wait, why are we doing it this way? Or why did we choose that library? 
that's really helpful and health and very healthy for a, a company and you know a team to experience that type of pushback, even if it's completely innocent. I mean, you, you don't want the person coming in that, that kind of thinks they know everything and, and oh, well, I'll, I'll give you all the answers and clearly you're doing it wrong. That can be a bit annoying and certainly rub team members the wrong way. But if, if somebody is genuinely curious and says, hey, well, you know, I've got experience with this other tool, it might, it might actually yield some benefit here. That, you know, you, you, can, you don't want to get on this, this treadmill of just changing your tools all the time, but having, having some of that pushback and some of, those, some of those types of questions come to the team is very helpful. Yeah, because I mean, in my mind, the question is, do you know how to write tests or like, can you write tests or think about how you would write tests? Like, can you implement an API and can you like create these relations? Like, are you familiar with, you know, basically how to write a Rails app? So uh, like I said, it's not that big of a deal. It's just like, I'm having to spend a lot of time on this. And the only reason is because I'm not familiar with these specific tools they're asking me to use, but I could pick up a tool. In fact, I could pick, I pick up a lot of tools, but you know, the key is knowing, I don't know, the underlying, like when to use the tool. Like, I feel like if you know how to use active model serializer, then you're probably going to be very, it's probably going to be pretty simple for you to figure out how to use the rest and vice versa. If you know how to use mini tests, using RSpec is not going to be a big deal. It's just different syntax, but the underlying concept of how do you write tests or what do you test or how do you architect tests is I think fundamentally the same between both. Yeah, I think, and there's even value to the company that's doing the interview. Like if I just said, hey, write an API that returns JSON for, you know, X, Y, Z. And then I look at your project and we, and we discuss it. I may, I mean, you may pick JBuilder or something else, right? And, and I'm going to ask the question, if we're using uh, active model serializers, why did you choose that? Like, what was your reasoning? Was it just because it became, came out of Rails or is there, are there other reasons? And, and then I can actually get some value out of the interview even if I don't hire you, right? And so it does seem silly to be very prescriptive about it. Yeah, but I mean, overall, like I said at the beginning, I'm very blessed and privileged to be in a position where I have a lot of people who have reached out and that I'm able to literally like pick through the ones that I do and don't find interesting. Because I mean, I've found, I've been interviewed a few times and and they were like, yeah, we would hire you. And but it was just not at a price that I thought was fair to me. So like I said, I'm in a position where I can say no to that. And not a lot of people aren't. And I want to be very mindful of that during this process. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense too. Yeah, you got me thinking about these APIs. And I'm wondering, would it be possible to do a JSON API with view component? Why, why would you do that? I don't know. I'm, I'm just curious. Like if I gave you a take-home quiz, could you could you actually create that? I don't. I actually personally don't have any experience with View Component other than kind of watching some of the talks and reading a little bit. But I haven't actually used it, and certainly haven't used it in in anger or earnest. I mean, could I? Sure. Is it the right thing to do? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, they do boast good performance, right? Well, yeah, but why would you write a JSON? Your JSON doesn't need to be anywhere near your view layer. That's the C in the MVC. Well, I mean, you're, if you're using JBuilder, you're, you're putting your, your JSON templates in, in with your view layer. No one's writing JBuilder anymore. <laughs> what is JBuilder? That gem in my gem file that I never uncomment? Ah, I know that one. 
It sits there <laughs> uncommon or as a comment for the entirety of the application. JBuilder's not that bad. I didn't say it was it's old. <laughs> but that makes sense why you're talking about it. <laughs> I liked using JBuilder. Hey man, what's a JBuilder? Why why would you need JBuilder? I mean, like I said, I, I I've seen it in Cove and I've literally never touched JBuilder. I know like you're writing basically API related things or JSON related things in your app, but you're also using ERB in that, which seems makes sense because of the the abstraction, like very close to your views. But once again, that doesn't really make sense to me. Why wouldn't like that? That's not a view related thing. That's like your controller is well, spitting that out. If you think about it, though, technically, what what you're doing is you're you're essentially marshaling you're, you're loading data in your controller, and then you're marshaling that out to some string representation. And if you think of it in those terms, it is very much a view concern because you're saying, oh, they requested a JSON format rather than an HTML format. Let me go to the the template mechanics that actually will take this data and marshal it into the string of that type of representation. But that's still your controller where you decide that. The controller will make the decision of what template it needs to use to, I mean, you may have a CSV that you're going to emit. You may have XML you're going to emit. You may have JSON. You may have HTML, RSS, all sorts of things, right? And all of those can be managed in your, uh, like the, the templates that describe the shape of that data of how it's going to emit into the string or, or transform into the string really does live kind of in your view layer. Right. Uh, like the view layer is like, like basically that string, right? Is it HTML or is it JSON? But it's still like, you know, being transformed into, you know, whatever the necessary format is and being sent over the wire as a string. When you think about I, it that way, it's very similar. I, I guess, but I feel like that's reaching because I still don't feel like it belongs with your view because it doesn't have a view. I mean, that's, I'm pretty sure serializers are what came after JBuilder. Am I wrong? Yeah, I can see getting hung up on the semantics of view, the name view. It's If we called it something different, it would work, right? I mean, conceptually, though, that's what's happening. You're saying, hey, I want to marshal this data into some string representation or, or just some type of representation, right? I mean, you could even hit a controller and say, hey, when they hit this controller, we're going to load up you know, these five records and combine them together and emit a... Uh, an image or emit even an audio file or something like that, right? But it's all the same type of concern where you're saying load the data and then transform it into this other representation. Yeah, I okay. It I hear what you're saying. It makes sense to me. I'm just I'm not I'm I don't I still don't think it's right, but I, I get what you're just saying. And sure, whatever. I mean, it's, to say, yeah, it's a bit of a stretch to say that all fits in like the view layer of your MVC stack, but it really does. But like the view is really just a serializer, right? For like, your HTML. Yeah. Like, and so I get it. Like you look at your, your view file and you see, oh, I've got HTML in here. And that's like kind of different than like the JSON data that's being sent. But ultimately that's all the view is, is a, is a serializer. Well, if the view is a serializer for HTML, then serializers are a serializer for the JSON. So right. are JBuilder templates. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> JBuilder. What even is JBuilder other than a gem that remains un- or commented out? I don't know. ERB in that feels bad. 
And having to define that manually because we have like JSON specs now or like there are ways that we want your JSON to be written and structured and a human format that seems very time wasting. It can be. It can also, but I mean, you get to pick up a lot of other benefits, right? I mean, you, you do get your, for, for better or worse, you get your Ruby logic uh, that you can write in those template files. You get access to the helpers. You get access to all of the Rails caching mechanics. All of the stack is there to serve those templates as well. Gotcha. Well, I w- it's worth mentioning, I did learn this. You can cache the hell out of the serializers, apparently. So food for thought, if anyone's thinking about using serializers, apparently their caching is pretty good. Who knows? Like I said, I mean, the, the actual tool you use, I feel is like not very important. The important fact is, can you get your Rails app to give me JSON if I want it? True. So I, I will concede this point. JBuilder sounds fine, but the very <laughs> word just, just isn't coming out of my mouth. <laughs> don't knock it till you tried it. No, you probably I, don't need to try it. Yeah. And you don't I was going to gonna say, do I need to? Yeah. No, because there's stimulus reflex now. You don't even need to marshal anything other than HTML over the wire. That's what I've been trying to say. <laughs> so it'd be like, build this app and we don't care what you use. Their mind would be blown. So how is stimulus reflex coming along? It's, you know, I've been completely buried with all of the, the work that we're doing at, at Code Fund and high levels of stress around that as we kind of work towards uh, true independence as a company. So I haven't given the library a lot of attention recently. I, we did get a, a pre-release out for Cable Ready. There's some really awesome features that got packed into that. And the community has been very active. Like, I'm, I'm so impressed with the, the, the caliber of people that we've attracted into the Stimulus Reflex community because they are, they are very active and the community is thriving and they're Everybody's waiting on me because I'm the bottleneck to get a lot of the pull requests reviewed and merged into the main library. But there's still a lot of activity and enthusiasm and help that's happening all around what's already released. And so a big kudos to the community. I'm very quickly becoming aware of how important community is and the the types of people that you attract and, and pull into your community. That's awesome. One thing, one bit of trivia about Stimulus Reflex that I've never really touched on, and I think the world needs to know, is that Stimulus Reflex would not be a thing if Ron had not pair programmed with me when I had these crazy harebrained ideas back in the, you know, this was like two plus years ago, (laughs) three years ago now. But yeah, I mean, we were working on a side project uh, of mine, one of mine, and I was like, I wonder if we could do this or I wonder if we could you know, contort these backend tools to, and, and use action cable to feed, you know, updates to the page. And it was very rough and early, but Ron was my sounding board and gave me a lot of good feedback in those early days. And that's what led to the creation of the library. Uh, yeah, welcome. Ron. <laughs> and now you've got, how does that make you feel, Ron? Hire this great movement. Say what? I said, and now there's some copycats. So how do you feel about inspiring this great movement? Oh, I, I feel great, man. You know, like imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. That's what they say. Oh, I'm just, I'm just waiting to get paid. Aren't we all? <laughs> well, keep waiting. I have to get in line here. Once Nate gets to yacht status, then uh, we'll start getting the overflow. Yeah, I would love to captain that yacht. I've always envisioned myself as a yacht captain in some life. 
Hey, if I get a yacht, you guys will be the first ones invited. You know nice. what? S- seeing you on this Zoom, I can see you as the captain of a yacht. Just- Dude, thank you, Ron. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You don't have, have no idea. This has been hard, but that has done a lot for my morale right now. You look the part, man. I, I, I like to party. Party and pilot is what, is what they say in the yacht life, I assume. Awesome. Are you guys have anything else to discuss before we wrap this up? I think, I think it was a good episode. Yeah. Sweet. Well, fellow or listeners, not fellow listeners. Well, I guess I listen too, so I would be a fellow listener. We will catch you guys back next week. And if you have any jobs, hit me up. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll see you. All right. Bye, y'all. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.